Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and welcome to the fifth anniversary program of the Deep in Scripture program. Uh, boy, I was just talking to the staff. I didn't realize here we are, the fifth anniversary already. We've been doing the program for four years, and I want to thank all of you who send us emails and other uh, means of letting us know that the program is an encouragement to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your prayers. I do pray that this program is an encouragement to your walk with Jesus Christ and helps you appreciate the wonderful church that he's given us. That's the purpose of this program. The idea of being deep in Scripture fits with our overall logo, our saying of the Coming Home Network International, it's important to be deep in Scripture and deep in history to be deep in Christ. We might talk about that later. That's a theme also of our annual Deep in History Conference. Because we believe that Scripture alone is not sufficient, that Scripture is a part of the wider tradition, the wider deposit of faith that we've received from Christ through His Church. And to understand Scripture correctly, it needs to be interpreted within the complete deposit of faith that we have received through the Church. And so if you'd like to know more about this program, you can go to our website, which you can find by going to chnetwork.org. That's the website for the Coming Home Network. And there's a link in which you can not only listen to this program and find all the archived programs, but you can actually watch this. You can watch my guest and I sitting here looking at each other as we do this program. So thank you for joining us today. What I've been doing for a number of years is asking guests to join me and talk about scriptures they never saw, particular scriptures that awakened them to a deeper walk with Christ and his church. Our guest for today is Kevin Lowry. Kevin's a good friend. He works with me at the Coming Home Network. He's the executive vice president and COO of the Coming Home Network International. Kevin originally hails from Toronto, Canada, and was the son of a Presbyterian minister who's Kevin's father also came into the Catholic Church. Kevin now lives in Columbus, Ohio with his wife, Kathy. They both came into the church in 1992 and now have eight children. Kevin received his bachelor's degree in accounting from Franciscan University of Steubenville and his MBA from Franklin University. He's a CPA, and that's what he brings to the work here at the Coming Home Network, helping us make sure we pay our bills and, and are good stewards of, of the resources we receive through the donors that support our work. He is also active in the Columbus chapter of Legatus, and he's working on a book for our Sunday visit. He might talk about that in a moment. Now, Kevin comes to our program today not as a theologian or a Bible scholar. He's a, a deeply committed follower of Jesus Christ, committed to the church, and he's chosen some scriptures today that talk about both uh, the necessity of unity within the church, within our fellowship, but also other aspects of our walk with Christ, which we'll look at in just a moment. The two sections of Scripture that we'll look at today are a short section from Ephesians and then a short section from Philippians. Let me read first the section from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll bump over to Philippians. So this is Paul writing to the Christians at Ephesus. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. And then Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Kevin Lowry. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Just fine. Thanks for joining us on the program. It's always good to have my guest in the studio here, so we're not just uh, messing with phone lines, so it's, it's great to have you here. And uh, in some sense, I want to uh, uh, ease your mind because the the audience, uh, I don't want them to expect that you feel the pressure of a, of a biblical scholar or a theologian, <laughs> but one who loves Scripture and loves Jesus Christ. Absolutely. No question. And I've been reading Scripture all of my life, but in many ways, I read it much differently now than I used to, uh, which is one of the reasons that I chose these passages. You're, uh, when I think of you, I, uh, I think of uh, you're a CPA, but one of the, the issues is where does faith hit the road? Sure. Um, and I think is, in some ways that's the book that you've been asked to write by OSV. That's exactly right. Uh, the book is going to be called Faith at Work how to make a career of becoming a saint at least that's the working title <laughs> and it's it's really uh the whole the whole emphasis of the book is how to become uh more deeply immersed in our faith through the workplace that we do you know the work that we do every day which which really is the key in the sense that often we we think about the work of the church being that of the cardinals, bishops, priests, and religious. Uh, when I was a Protestant, that was still often the case, that it's the ministers, you know, right. the missionaries. They're the ones that do the work, and the rest of us help. But the truth is, as John Paul so uh, clearly described in his letter, Christophidus Laeci, that actually the frontline work, in many ways you might say the most important work of the church is done by the laity who are, who are there living out their faith in the midst of the struggles of life. Absolutely. In fact, in many ways, uh, I, I've spent most of my life up until fairly recently in a secular career, which I regard as the front lines of evangelization. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the bottom line is a, an issue of vocation. You know, therefore, um, you, you ask yourself as you discern beside God in prayer, in other words, all right, Lord, what were you calling me to do? What are the gifts you've given me? And you're discerning that from the input you receive from friends and family, uh, spiritual direction. And that is discerning where is the mission field into which you've been called. Right. Is it the, 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 the boardroom of a major organization, or is it as a teacher in front of sixth graders? Right. Or 
you know, driving a truck across country? You, you, where is the, the place that God has called you to serve? Right, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because that's, in many cases, not just a, a, a sort of one answer and you're set for the rest of your life. This is something that, that we keep continuing to go back to and to making sure uh, that we're using our gifts for God's glory at every stage of life, whatever that may be. Now, interesting, the, the word call mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. in the first passage that you, you, you chose today. Before we jump into it, just in general, sure. you know, why these passages? Well, first of all, because I, I had some idea that you'd been doing this for uh, uh, several years and I wanted to be a little bit off the beaten path. <laughs> but in addition to that, really these two jumped out at me because in, in the first sense, uh, the, uh, the Ephesians uh, passage is speaking very clearly about unity. And when I read that in my former life as a Protestant, I would look at that and I, I sort of regarded the church as this kind of loose affiliation of, of anybody who called themselves Christian. And I regarded the different denominations as having different uh, emphases or, or uh, you know, different traditions, things of that nature. That I, I, I always thought that nobody had it 100% right but perhaps we all had enough of it and that we agreed on on the fundamentals and we would figure out the rest of it uh, once we hit the other side. Uh, I never really regarded unity as something that was much more than that. Mm. So unity now, as a Catholic, I look at this verse and and I see it through a completely different set of lenses. Um, And the Philippians verse, the the thing that, uh, that really... Uh, intrigued me there was this whole notion of suffering being granted for the sake of Christ uh, as we seek to live out our faith in a very real way. Suffering is inevitably a part of that. And to have suffering uh, with salvific purpose and meaning is something that was completely foreign. So as I looked at both of these verses, I I saw, uh, you know, first in, in Ephesians, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the call you've received. And then in the Philippians verse, conduct yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's talking about how to live with the faith that we've been given. And as uh, I've always been confused by the the, the faith versus works kind of uh, what I regard as a false dichotomy, because I don't think that there it's, it's an either or. I've always viewed it as a both and. So really, the faith is, is absolutely something that's there, that's beautiful, that's a gift. Uh, and at the same time, the, the, the work side of it is, is something that, you know, if, if we have that faith, it should just, it should naturally flow into desiring to live it out. Uh, yeah. in, in the little things as well as the big things. Yeah, and it, what you mentioned a moment ago, I, I do think is important for us to the discussion, and that is that when you, you looked from your background at, at all the different traditions, and you and your family had come from a Reformed tradition, your right. dad was a Presbyterian pastor, though he was a Canadian Presbyterian, so who knows where they're coming from. But, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> joking, but sadly in the history of the church in Canada that there was this great unification of, of denominations that right. amalgamated and then kind of melded down a bunch of things and, and in the end could end up with a very liberal sure. uh, uh, grouping of Christians. But, um, but yet there's, you look at all the different denominations, the different opinions, and yet you assume there's unity. Right. And so you see the differences. So what happens is if you assume there's unity in the differences, you have to redefine unity. Yes, exactly. That's, it's, it's as if saying, okay, we know two plus two equals four. Right. All right. But right now the answer is six. Yeah, yeah. So what's wrong here? Instead of questioning, well, maybe I got the wrong answer, pretty soon you're, well, it wasn't two plus two, maybe it's two plus four. Yeah. So you redefine from the wrong direction. Sure, sure. And that's what we did for so long. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, as, you know, as you mentioned before, my parents both came into the church, and, and my dad in particular uh, had a real thing about Christian unity. And in fact, at one point, I think, you know, we, you've heard this story before, but uh, he had an opportunity to go and visit the Vatican and spend a week over there. 
And he came back, and he was uh, not only a Presbyterian minister, but a clerk of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. So he wrote an article about his experience meeting the Pope, uh, and it was published in the uh, Presbyterian Record, which was the denominational magazine up there. And it had his picture on the front cover shaking hands with the Pope. And the it was unbelievable the kind of chaos that ensued within the church and there was every sort of response across the entire spectrum everything from what i can only describe as hate mail <laughs> to people who are extremely supportive and saying isn't this wonderful this is this is ecumenical this is you know what have you and and then one guy wrote and said well why doesn't dr lowry just become catholic mm-hmm. and and that was kind of the light bulb going on but I think that the, the unity, to me, uh, as, as important as it was for him, and he saw the answer to that in the Eucharist, I came to see unity as being important because of the fact that I had seen so much disunity mm. in my, uh, specifically in my childhood growing up. Uh, when, I, when I was a kid, I was a Presbyterian. But then later, uh, I had uh, my best friend was a Church of Christ minister's son. And I had a bunch of Baptist friends, and I went to a Pentecostal school for uh, junior high. And then later, believe it or not, I went from the Pentecostal school into a Quaker high school. <laughs> and I, I was literally bounced all over the place. And what, what really took hold within me was this notion that, that there were vast differences in interpretations of Scripture, in, in worldview, in... Uh, just the, the, the whole mindset or the way of thinking that undergirded people's faith. And I, it just became more and more apparent to me that there had to be something that was a little bit more transcendent than some of the things that I had seen and that, that hung together better than, than you know, what, what I was seeing increasingly as just you know, multiplication by division, as, as the saying goes. Well, in the two passages that you chose there are similar sentences mm-hmm. that that might be a good place to begin um, and it's it's possible that some of our audience have not taken the time to read these two passages next to each other to see right. that there's a, a parallel in an Ephesians 4 1 Paul says I therefore a prisoner for the Lord beg you to Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that, and this part of Ephesians is the second half of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, 3, is often considered the theological part. In my view, Paul is describing in chapters 1, 2, 3 what baptism means and does, Mm -hmm. makes you a, a member of the body of Christ, a member of the church. And then the second half, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is kind of, a, all right, so what now? How do you live that out? Right. Okay, it's practical. Right. So he begins it, though, okay, given all that, chapters 1, 2, 3, now lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Similarly, in Philippians, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, he's calling them to live a particular manner of life, but he uses the, the common word worthy. Right. That's now talk right. about that word, because from your background as a Presbyterian and mine, the word worthy mm-hmm. uh, w- w- was an, a, a problematic word. Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting because worthy now means a completely different thing. The, the way that I looked at these passages before is, is different in the sense that, that before it was, it was me who had chosen God, and I, in, in a certain sense, at least, I was picking and choosing what I believed. <laughs> and in becoming Catholic, there, there were a couple things that kind of got turned on their head. First and foremost, I felt that God called me. It, it was very different <laughs> and, and profoundly uh, uh, you know, honoring in a certain sense that God would actually you know, care uh, with all the billions of people on earth to actually tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you, I want you to go in this direction. But the other interesting thing is one of the things that I appreciated in learning about the Catholic Church is that 
essentially because the church has such a rich history and, and the tradition of the church and its its uh, consistency and interpretation and things of that nature it hangs together like nothing else and it actually believes in something so the challenge wasn't to try to conform god or my view of god to me it was rather for me to change my behavior and to and to live up to something that i could that was worthy of of the call worthy of the gospel of of jesus it's a totally different way of looking at it well there's a wonderful collection of writings called the philokalia which are from the eastern half of the church the uh, orthodox and eastern catholic writers uh, great spiritual writers and one of those writers talks about the 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 danger of the search for self-esteem, mm. the mm. sin of self-esteem. And, and this particular writer just waxed eloquently about the danger of self-esteem, which is, in our culture, the goal right. of everything. <laughs> and you could see in our culture, which sees self-esteem and, and self-worthiness as the, as the goal, you could almost envision this verse being written differently. Right. In other words, Paul begging people to seek a calling worthy of them. Right. Right. Absolutely. Discovering who you are and and what your gifts are and your value. And then the goal is to find that job, that calling out there that's worthy of you. Right. Right, because in so many ways, we spend a lot of time, or at least I know I did as a Protestant, trying to discern, because I had to be judge and jury on every single issue. Now that that's all settled, I don't need to worry about that, because I have trust that, that the due diligence has been done, to put it in, in business terms. It's, and that's very liberating at least to me because then you're right it's 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 now a question of trying to discern calling what is it that god specifically calls me to do now that we've, we've sort of laid aside some of the other big decisions like our, you know our priesthood versus married life all those other things now for me as a a husband and a father of eight children what is god calling me to do in the future and that's a much more interesting question because it, it it's goes specifically to what are the gifts that God has given me and how can I use those for his glory. And the danger of, if we get our focus wrong, we can become paralyzed in our search to discern what God wants us to do. Sure. Because we can focus too much on the past, mm-hmm. how was I trained? What have I done? What, where have I shown? Or what is it that God wants me to do tomorrow? Right. What is my big horizon? Right. And in the process, miss now. Yeah. yeah. And where I believe in this passage you have chosen, Paul has an interesting way of kind of you know turning the, the little the knife <laughs> if you will <laughs> because he doesn't just say i therefore beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called he says i therefore a prisoner for the lord mm-hmm. he sets the entire context because you might be complaining boy if i had this opportunity or this or had done that i might be and he's saying now just before you go there I'm a I'm in chains for you. Right. Right. And isn't it interesting because that's one of the reasons that I picked the second passage as well because the, the and I, I I have to say I was a little hesitant to do that. Uh, a couple of years ago I gave a talk on the relationship between suffering and gratitude at the Columbus Catholic Men's Conference and 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 in retrospect, I think that was a very silly topic to pick because it's almost like I was inviting hardship on myself. Uh, and so I got some opportunities to practice after, practice what I was preaching after that. But the fact is that suffering, as I started looking at it in the scriptures now with with the new you know the eyes of a Catholic, 
and recognizing the value there. What I also found was that the attitude towards suffering, historically and particularly in scriptures, is completely different than what it is now. If, if you look back at Acts chapter 5, for example, the apostles are hauled in front of the Sanhedrin and, and they are eventually, you know, they go through all this consternation and then they're flogged and then set, set loose. And as soon as they're set loose, they say that they are, they go away rejoicing that they have been worthy to suffer uh, for the sake of the name. It's completely, completely countercultural in terms of how we look at suffering. You know, these guys were, th- were, were thrilled that they were able to suffer hardship for Christ. And I, I think for us, you know, it's not like we're supposed to be going after suffering and that we're supposed to, you know, inflict suffering on ourselves. It's really more that we are to, called to, you know, to, to carry whichever crosses it is that God gives us and, and have, uh, as this, you know, says, uh, not, not, having a, not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. I mean, we're not called to have a spirit of cowardice. Instead, we need to stand up and be willing to accept the crosses that God gives us, even though the ones, I, I, I know in my life, Marcus, I'm sure in yours too, the ones that he gives us are not the ones we would ask for. Right, right. And we're going to take a break. Uh, before we do that, Kevin, when we come back, what I'd like to prepare you for is that, again, that first verse in chapter 4, Ephesians, who knows, we might not get much farther than that this whole program, but there's a very present tense nature to that. Mm-hmm. He's not really, in the context of that, worrying about yesterday right. or tomorrow. He's asking you to live the life worthy of the calling that you have. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. But uh, in, in the context of that, I'm going to throw another wrench into this when we come back. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and on, in which he talks about a thorn mm-hmm. that he was given. Sure. That he would have loved to have gotten out of his life. Right. We'll look at that when we come back in a okay. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Kevin Lowry. And your hearing is on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Kevin Lowry. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. But uh, before we move on, uh, uh, Kevin, I wanted to throw into this mix this uh, these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is very candid with his audience about the struggles he has mm-hmm. with the present calling. Mm-hmm that God has given to him. And beginning with verse 7, Paul says, to keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ Christ, may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, 
I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't it, isn't it interesting how that, doesn't that just open up the gospel in a new way in the sense that we can all relate to that? You know, we all have weaknesses. We all have things in our lives that we wish weren't there. And, and this is a way, at least when I read this, that I can really identify with what he's saying. Uh, it makes him very human to me. Uh, and it gives me hope in the sense that what he's exhorting us to do is really take care of today. You know, we need to be present. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me how if, you know, by using some of the things that he's saying, even in, again, in the small things, we just have such an opportunity to be ministers of the gospel. I'll give you an example. Even a, This is a very practical one. I was, I was very touched early in my career when I, I heard about, uh, it was, I was in a CPA firm at the time, um, and the managing partner was a very busy guy. And one day he heard uh, about this, this woman who had lost her purse in the office. And this is a guy with intense time pressure all the time. And do you know he dropped everything and helped this woman look for her purse for, for you know an hour, an hour and a half in the middle of the day and until they finally found it. And just put everything else aside, put aside all of the different pressures and everything that he was going through on that particular moment and was, was present to her. And what a, what a tremendous witness that was. Uh, and that, to me, speaks of, you know, as, as it talks in Ephesians, you know, the humility and gentleness and actually living that out. Well, here, if someone to say, okay, uh, I know my life as it is now, maybe I'd love it to be different. There's about 15 thorns I wish God would take away, but for some reason he's not. So how do I leave, lead a life worthy of this? Because I'm saying worthy of it. Right. It doesn't, you know, this... <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I wish it was higher, you know, so that I might strive to some worthiness. But he's saying, no, 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 appreciate what you have. Absolutely. Uh, in other words, quit looking at the glass half empty, look at it half full. Sure. It, uh, but he gives then in verses 2, 3, and 4 of Ephesians 4 some qualities, especially 2 and 3. 4 through 6 deal with the oneness of the church, mm-hmm. but 2 through 3. And, and talk about how these virtues help us lowliness meekness patience forbearing one another in love eager to maintain maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace mm-hmm. you know it's interesting because i th- uh, you know first and foremost i have to say in practice what i see is that uh sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves because we don't feel that we're models of some of these things and most often what we're thinking about is our emotional responses and yet, my contention is even with the emotional responses, because we're you know we're all human, we're all emotional by nature, we can still achieve these things, and particularly things like humility, or, or I think what's uh, what's called meekness in your translation. That is, uh, at least in my experience, one of the foundational uh, uh, virtues of teamwork. So if, as I spent, you know, 20 plus years in the business world, humility was absolutely critical because it's only in humility that we're able to focus on others and not on ourselves. So gentleness, I, I can't tell you as, a, as I rose through the ranks and, and became a manager, how many interpersonal difficulties I dealt with because people weren't gentle to one another and, and they were just, you know, very, uh, I think a little bit too forthright with their emotions. Uh, and patience, of course. I mean, we need to be patient with others. In the same way, we need to be patient with ourselves. Uh, I, I don't know how how easy it is to come into a new situation, for example, and and want to learn everything immediately. And and how many times I've had to tell new staff people, you need to be patient with yourselves. You know, with yourself. It's okay. It's going to take time for you to absorb some of these things. Now, from your experience. Kevin, how do you keep from becoming a doormat for other people then? I mean, if you're called to be lowly, meek, patience, forbearing, and one another in love, 
how do you keep from therefore becoming everybody's doormat and letting the world run all over you? Sure, sure. Well, I think that, you know, we're also called to have fortitude and to have a certain strength of will. And, and there are other virtues that, that need to go into the mix as well. Um, and it's always a balancing act. I'm not sure that there's just any one magic bullet there. At the same time, first and foremost, I think that we need to be prayerful in how we discern specific situations. I know that I don't always have instantaneous wisdom with every circumstance that, that, that comes along. I have to pray about those things. I have to think about those things. And in some cases, it's especially where we're presented with what appears to be two very op- obvious and opposite uh, ways of going about things. In many cases, there are other alternatives. And in it uh, usually takes time, at least for me, to process that and to try to come up with those those creative solutions that come from the Lord. Well, in verse 2, after he says, with lowliness, meekness, with patience, he uses the phrase forbearing one another in love. Later in the same chapter, in verse 15, he's going to say speaking the truth right. in love. Right. And I've always taken that to mean that, and I'm getting back to this doormat issue, Mm -hmm. that yes, there are times when, um, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, when the Christians were out there suing one another, Mm -hmm. taking, you know, their their issues out into the courts, he would say, you know, why are you doing this? It's better to be wronged, you know, and that's what he says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's five or six. But the, the, the point is that within us, that speaking the truth in love sometimes is a hard statement to one another. Yeah. Jesus loved the leper. Mm-hmm. He loved the apostles. He loved the woman at the well. He also loved the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. But his love was expressed differently. Mm-hmm. And to the Pharisees, he had to confront them for their, um, their um, uh, the fact that they were not living what they taught. Mm-hmm. So their hypocrisy. Right. If he, if he didn't love them, he would have just let them go. But he loved them, so he wouldn't let them go. Right. So the problem with doormat Christianity is that we aren't willing to take a stand for what's true. Right. And sometimes it's taking that stand that actually brings the suffering. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, directionally speaking, that's true. If, if we're going to err on a side, we should err on the side of self-sacrifice. At the same time, sometimes, for some people, being a doormat isn't the issue. For some people, it's the opposite. It's being var- hypercritical of other people. I think that it goes back to the same thing as with calling. It's really having some level of self-knowledge and understanding what it is that God is asking us to do. Because, again, it's not us trying to change God. It's God trying to change us. So we're to take the circumstances of life and and to discern what it is that he's calling us, how he's calling us to develop in different ways, not only in our vocation, but, but certainly in uh, our, our need for various virtues as well. We're going to take another break. And, Kevin, when we come back, let's jump over to the Philippians passage and talk about the, the significance of that, also with this idea of being worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Kevin Lowry, and you're hearing us, of course, on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Kevin Lowry. We've been looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, particularly 1 through 3, um, and 
I also want to make sure we get a chance to look at the Philippians passage. And let me read that quickly, Kevin, for those that may have just joined us. This is Philippians 1, 27 through 29. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It seems that the context here is that these Christians are seeking to live the gospel of Christ as they received it, but they're in the context of others that are challenging them Sure. And their way of living, trying to lure them into a different way of living, maybe ways that aren't moral or ethical or doctrinally sound. And as a result of that, they're suffering. Right. And it, I mean, it's exactly the same today. Because if you think about it, we've, uh, we can't be intimidated in any way either. Uh, by the culture that, that has such a, a different view than, than what we might. Um, and at the same time, you know, the, the willingness to be to to suffer for Christ is is key to this. And as I saw it, as, as I was sort of looking through this and, and thinking about uh, which verses really had an impact on me, it's that that virtue or, or that that salvific virtue of suffering that really has resonated with me uh, in many ways. And. In practice, my experience has been that in so many times in my life, I've had periods of extraordinary suffering, but almost invariably followed by, you know, the, the sun, kind of the clouds parting and the sun shining through, and and it, everything becomes apparent as to why it happened. Uh, and I'm consistently impressed too with just how very small acts can have such a profound uh, impact on people. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, I, and I think I, I'm gonna tell the story in, in the book too, but uh, there was a guy that I worked for a number of years ago who uh, I, I was in the midst of relocating to Pittsburgh. My parents had moved from Canada down to Steubenville. My dad was gonna teach there. And uh, Kathy and I at the time had four kids and we, we needed free babysitting. So we decided to move to Pittsburgh. And I approached the uh, firm I was working with, and they promptly that day showed me the door. So all of a sudden, I had I, we had we had no money, and uh, I I was really put in a in a bad position because of this. I, I had given them notice. I thought, okay, I'd work for a few more weeks, and that didn't happen. So I approached this this guy that I used to work for before that, and it, it, it to him, I'm sure this wasn't a big deal. But he was he was grateful for what I had done for him before. And, uh, and on the spot, he said, you know what, why don't you just do a little bit of consulting for me, and here's a check. And, Marcus, that was over 15 years ago that this happened, and it wasn't a big deal from his perspective. But I can't tell you how that hardship really led me to have a loyalty to this, to this individual and to his organization um, in a way that I'll never forget. He was there at the right time. And what that means to me is that we all have a similar opportunity to be able to touch the lives of others, sometimes mo most precisely when they are suffering and mm -hmm. when they are struggling. And it's not like we have to solve all their problems for them, but being there for them, being, you know, being present, praying for them, and, and, uh, and in many cases doing practical things too, uh, but there, there's such an opportunity there, even in the smallest things that we think are insignificant. There's a great example of how the Lord, through his grace, helped you see how he was working through the life of someone else, and you were impressed by the way this person lived, right. lived worthy of the calling, lived worthy of the gospel, and it affected you. Absolutely. And I do, let's talk about that because Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's possible he's 
digging much deeper into our lives than we want to admit. We think about, okay, live a life worthy of the gospel or lead a life worthy of the calling. All right, okay, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to... You know, that's a, that's a, a, a an important layer. Sure. But it's a very visible mm-hmm. and maybe easy to clean up that layer first. And, and Teresa of Avila, I think that's the first or second layer of the castles. But it's not dealing with fourth, fifth, sixth, the, the deeper levels. Manner of life might require us to take a big step back and see we got some habits mm-hmm. that we're so accustomed to that we just can't see. Mm-hmm that may in fact be the more visible problem than these other more obvious things. Right. And in some cases, we're not going to see that necessarily on our own. Uh, In fact, I've become, uh, over the the past few years, a big fan of spiritual direction, partially for the reason of, of again, the opportunity to get objectivity uh, into situations. But I think what we're all striving for, in my view, it's to allow the faith to permeate every aspect of our lives and not simply to rid ourselves of, of the bad things, you know, the, the, the bad habits, this, that, and the other thing. But as uh, I think it was uh, Brother Lawrence in Practicing the Presence of God was talking about, he, he wouldn't even bend over and pick up a twig except for the love of God. So it's really trying to order hmm. our entire lives and all of our efforts again, from a very practical sort of day-to-day level in how can we order all of that towards service of God, even in the stuff that, that is just completely mundane. Both these passages, there's another obvious parallel, and that's the rep- repetition of the word one in both passages in Ephesians 4, the, the calling to live a life worthy is so that there would be expressed one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father is all. In Philippians particularly, the leading of this life worthy is so that he'll hear. Mm-hmm. Paul may not be there, but that their reputation will be an expression of this this oneness. Oh, yeah. And if you think about it, the, the really, uh, you know, my dad used to express the, uh, the the Reformation as uh, a break at the Lord's table that, that caused mm-hmm. him grief. And, uh, and it's interesting because I think that there is so much to unity. In fact, if you look at John chapter 17 and you see Jesus praying and he says, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And as a Protestant, Again, that didn't really register with me on any level. But if you think about what has been given up, the opportunity cost of all the division within, within uh, Christianity, it, it's really staggering. And the only way that, that, my, you know, that, that I and my wife uh, could, could uh, reconcile that was to come into the church and followed by my parents doing the same thing. And of course, you've had a, a constant stream of people on your shows and, and uh, right. that we, we hear from at the Coming Home Network. And I just think that the key to unity truly is the church because what, what I saw outside was that there was no unity precisely because there was no authority. Because authority is, is absolutely required mm-hmm. for unity. And this was the only place that I found it within the, the church. And even though the church is imperfect, the hierarchy is imperfect, the, it, it's made up of, of people uh, who are sinful. But at the same time, having that divine assurance, uh, it, it's to me, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. If we bump to that verse 27 in Philippians 1, Paul is saying, I may not come, I may not see you, I might be absent, but that I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit. And he goes right. on. Right. Well, the beauty is that we as Catholics recognize that the church is not merely the church right now in action, it's also the church suffering right. and the church victorious, the, the triumphant in heaven. And one thing we believe about the saints is that somehow in God's mystery, they do see us. 
right. and hear us and can intercede for us. So the question is, if St. Paul looked at us, so all of us talking about how we live out his gospel, all the different traditions, the thousands of different interpretations, what would he see? What would he hear? And I'm drawn to a couple passages beyond that, to the first two passages in chapter 2 of Philippians, where Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right, right. That's exactly what we broke in the Reformation. Right. Right, exactly. And isn't it amazing just, again, the the practical implications of that are staggering because in so many ways Christianity has has lost uh, a a lot of, of, uh, you know, practical impact on people as a result of that. Because, and even from a strategic standpoint, if you were the evil one, how would you go about trying to discredit uh, the Christian church. I, divide and conquer, I think, is is about as good a strategy as, as ever. And of course, that's that's really happened. Well, and, it, you know, we've got to be careful. We don't want to be pointing fingers at our separated brethren all the time, because the reason behind the Reformation was that there were Catholics Absolutely. that were not living this way. And there right. still aren't. Sure. Oh, sure. You know, we're divided amongst ourselves, and sometimes some of the most insignificant reasons that we can't get along. And so... That's why Paul was at this time speaking to a unified group, right. but staying unified. Right. It wasn't a guarantee. But it's so countercultural because especially if you look at it today, it's almost like Christianity is 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 it's a matter of taste. You know, it's it's uh, I, I saw an article at one point, coffee, tea, or thee. And it, it, it was a terrific article and made a very good point about how it's really, you know, the, what we, I think, in some cases call uh, consumer Christianity mm-hmm. is breathtaking in its scope. And, of course, you see it within the Catholic Church as well, where people are saying, okay, I agree with this, I don't agree with this, as, as though, you know, our uh, couple decades worth of wisdom exceeds that of the cumulative wisdom of the Church. It's It's really... Uh, it's really very sad in a sense. But at the same time, the beauty of, of uh, the Catholic Church is that it does have the wisdom of ages and can point in the right direction, even if we can't ever live up to it 100%. Well, both these passages are calling us to live as one, as Christ called it to, which means that you, Kevin, and I, and each one of us are called to examine our lives. Are we living according to the calling, the gospel, And maybe the verse which we didn't quite get to, which was verse 7 of chapter 4, Ephesians, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's the grace that we've been given that enables us to do any of this. Right. It's the gift of that grace. So, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. On Deep in Scripture, and we, we ask God's blessing on your book as you prepare it. Thanks. All right. All of you joining us, I hope this was an encouragement to you. Please join us again soon on Deep in Scripture. God bless.